let's pray together. Father God, thank you that uh, you're not just a God who understands, but a God who equips. And thank you that by your spirit, you are equipping each and every one of us uh, to love each other well and to spur each other on to love and good works. Father, as we look now at how we can help those who are struggling, how we can walk alongside them humbly, Father, please be at work in our hearts. Please be equipping us as individuals and as churches. And Father, we pray that those who are struggling in our congregations will know what it is to to flourish even on, on bad days. Use us in that work, we pray. Amen. Well, I hope in session one we have established that actually if we're struggling with mental health uh, struggles, then, you know, we are loved and we are welcome and we're, 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 we're normal on all levels. You know, what we're going through is part of a normal human experience. But many of us will know that walking alongside someone who is struggling has a complexity to it. It's a privilege. It's a joy. It's a good thing to do. But sometimes uh, we don't always know how to do that well. So again, just turn to the person next to you. Um, And and this is not about giving the right answer. This is about giving the honest answer from our hearts. You know, what are some of the hard things and some of the good things about walking alongside someone that's struggling with a mental health struggle? Now, what kind of thoughts go through our heads when we're asked to support someone? Um, Again, we're not looking for the right answer. And if you're the person that's being supported, please don't hear this as the people around me don't want to do this. This is just about them being honest and going, some things are a joy and a privilege, and some things confuse me. Let's have a conversation, just about a minute and a half, about how we feel about supporting those who are struggling. (laughs) Okay, let's uh, come back together again. If you are a normal bunch of women, and quite frankly, you do look like a fairly normal bunch of women from up here, uh, these are the kinds of thoughts that, that might be going through your mind. Sometimes we just want to run away a little bit. Not from the person, but from the things that we don't understand. There's that sense of, I I, I don't know what I'm doing, therefore I think maybe I'd like to be a little more in my comfort zone. Sometimes we just want to delegate. I'm sure there's a GP around here somewhere. Uh, Let's go and find one of those uh, and and pass that information on to them. Or or a more mature Christian woman in the church. Yeah, I, I'm sure I'll be able to do this in 20 years' time, but for now, let's go and find the women's worker um, and uh, see if we can uh, get them to be involved. Sometimes we just want to make it better, and that's a good instinct, but beyond our remit as human beings. I just want to find what will fix this. I want to find the thing that will help that depression go away or that anxiety go away. I want to find that thing that will help that person thrive. And often that thing isn't within our power but we have that desire and drive to make people better, which we can't do. And actually, uh, if you've ever been on the receiving end of someone trying to make you better, that can be quite an uncomfortable uh, place to be. But option four is a beautiful option. Walking alongside another person with our eyes fixed on Jesus. (coughs) Acknowledging that we're both messy, we're both struggling, We're both likely to fall flat on our face at some point. But we both can keep going in our different struggles. One of the pictures of church that I really like is a picture of a group of men and women 
with their arms linked, walking through the mud, eyes on Jesus. Community, holding each other up at different times, using our different gifts and skills and capacities to serve others, but always knowing that actually it's not just about us helping another person to keep going, it's about us helping each other to keep going. Because even if we're doing really well right now, there's going to come a day when we struggle. And we'll need each other. Well, let's look at some principles uh, of pastoral care. Uh, this isn't a kind of a everything you need to know about pastoral care. We, we don't have that much time. But some things here to think about uh, in your local church. Uh, and that is, as a church, accepting that brokenness is normality. I mean, look through the Bible. You've got Moses, who had a bit of stage fright, didn't like public speaking. Anxiety in them. You have um, Noah, had a bit of an alcohol problem, at least on one night. You've got people like Elijah, that seem to be struggling with depression and despair. You've got people like David, hiding in a cave, full of fear. You've got Jesus weeping the night before he was crucified, going, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours. You've got the disciples. Certainly some of them had anger and impulse control issues. It's normal to be broken and messy in the church. If you're struggling, you're not weird. You're normal. And that's what we ought to be saying to our churches. Churches are a place where you can come and live a life of dependence on Jesus in whatever mess that you are struggling with. And to acknowledge that means talking about it. Not, not literally at every moment, but actually having a tone of openness. You know that moment when you come through the front door of your church? And I'm guessing there's someone on welcome there, um, depending on your kind of... Uh, kind of church you go to and somebody at some point that morning is going to say hey how are you and you all answer <laughs> now I'm not for a moment everyone tells the person on the door everything that's going on that would be a little <laughs> bit overwhelming but there needs to be somebody in the church to whom we don't say I'm fine not unless we genuinely are Churches are places of intimacy, of sharing lives, as Paul says in his letter. Where we know each other. We don't need the miracle of the church car park, where you leave the house feeling anxious and depressed, but you arrive at church perfect. That does nobody any good. We're called to be people who are vulnerable, wisely vulnerable. You know, we want to trust the person that we're talking to. That person needs to be trustworthy. But in small groups, about being known. And that's all of us, whether we're struggling or not. Because we've all got some struggles, it's just some of them are bigger than others. I remember the first time I ever gave my testimony in church. I had one of those, you know, some people have testimonies of growing up in a Christian home and just having a moment on camp where they discovered that, that Jesus is their Lord, not just Lord generally. And those are beautiful testimonies, aren't they? Mine's not like that. Uh, mine is a, a testimony of coming from a background of alcohol addiction, uh, of going into rehab, uh, of really struggling with self-harm and, and an eating disorder. And 
it's one of those testimonies where people will sometimes look at me now and kind of go, are you sure? Um, but that really was my background. And I remember the first time I got up and spoke about this, uh, there was just a hushed silence in the congregation. And then what goes through your head is like, that's it, I'm changing churches now. <laughs> can never make eye contact with any of these people ever again. But that was the day when people came up to me and went, Helen, I get anxious too. Helen, I'm depressed too. Helen, I've battled an addiction too. It was me being vulnerable about my messes that enabled others to be vulnerable about theirs. Set a tone in our churches where it's safe. I say, be wise about who you tell. Now, occasionally there are people that it's not wise to tell. But generally, let's be open about what we're going through. And we can do that through testimonies, if that's the culture in your church. We can do that through bookstalls, just having books on there about anxiety and depression and pornography and uh, abuse and all those other uh, topics. Just, it gives the message, this is a church where these topics can be talked about. If you are doing uh, talks, uh, then you can include illustrations in your talks. If you are not doing talks, you can maybe nudge uh, those who are doing talks, to include these things in their illustrations. And actually, just normalise praying together. Do you ever have that feeling that, you know that church service where it's all gone horribly wrong and you're sitting sobbing uh, and part of your brain is saying, I wish someone would notice and they could come over and pray with me. And part of you is wishing that no one would notice so you could go away without praying with anyone. <laughs> the normal human mind at its finest. Just in your churches, normalise praying. Don't be embarrassed about being seen with a tissue in your hand uh, and praying with one another. It's a sign that goes, this is the church where we know life is hard. And we're committed to taking that hard stuff to the Lord together. Because we love each other. Not rocket science stuff. It can be a little bit tricky uh, the first few weeks. But actually, setting that kind of culture can be beautiful. And, and seeing each other with humility is important too. I am not the strong one that is here to fix you guys. Uh, and you are not the strong ones that are here to fix the other people in your church. And if you're struggling, you're not the weak one that needs fixing by other people in your church. We're all sisters. With different gifts. With different limbs. But we're all here together, equal in the sight of God. Yes, there will be moments where I'm the one standing on the stage and you're the ones listening. Uh, yes, there will be differences in roles sometimes, but that doesn't make any of us better than the other. We're not here to make each other better. We're here to pursue Christ, faithfully following him in all the circumstances of life and applying his word gently and beautifully to each other so we can thrive and keep going and persevere and change in the power of the Spirit. And that means we keep on loving each other there are no boundaries on love. Boundaries are often a big thing, and there do need to be boundaries on time sometimes. I, ha I have a, a lovely, beautiful friend who struggles with borderline personality disorder, and at her worst, she will phone me 22 times a day. It is not my job to answer that phone 22 times. There are absolute boundaries on my time. I have an absolute rule with everyone at church who is struggling that you do not phone me before 8 in the morning or after 10 at night unless you are in a police station under arrest or in A&E. Because quite frankly, if you keep phoning me at 3 o'clock in the morning, I might be well trained, but I am as pastoral as a cactus if I'm sleep deprived. 
It's far better you never get to eight in the morning and I have a decent conversation with you. Do put boundaries on time. Please never, ever say to anyone, call me any time of the day or night, because then they might. And they haven't done anything wrong because he said they can. But there are no boundaries on love. We keep on loving them and keep on loving them. And when necessary, keep on forgiving them and asking for their forgiveness of us. No boundaries there. And when we're walking alongside people, we do it as a team. Now, there is a, there is a place for very specific one-on-one counselling. And I do some of that in, in ministry, uh, you know, that, that more therapeutic kind of 50 minutes in a room together talking about something really hard. But that's not what most of us want to do, and that's not what most of us need when we're struggling. We are people that work as a team, a community. It can be so tempting, isn't it, to think, oh, the pastor or, or whoever has, uh, has asked me to walk alongside this person, therefore I've got to do everything. And it becomes so time-consuming. It feels like a burden, and then that's when we want to walk away from the person that's hurting. <coughs> but if we know we're all in this together, with them serving us and us serving them and other people coming into the mix as well, then people don't get burnt out. People don't get tired. People don't want to run away. People don't get resentful. Of course, there are bumps along the way. I'm not naive. But usually it works. If you, if you want to think more sort of formally... Circles of concern are often a model that I'm teaching when I'm teaching more formally on, on pastoral care in churches. And that means, you imagine you've got a person here who is struggling with, with depression, fairly serious depression, really struggling to kind of eat and get out of the house, uh, struggling to get out of bed. Now, what you don't want is one person trying to meet all of that person's needs in the church, recipe for disaster. What you're looking for is for someone that can go shopping with them once a week. Same time as you would normally go shopping, just pop them in the car and go together. Someone that can open scripture with them, just a little bit, not a full Bible study, just to curl up on the sofa going, let's read three verses and look at three questions. What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about us? How are we going to respond? Simple, bite-sized, nothing overwhelming. You want a prayer warrior in there that can galvanise people to be praying for this person, to keep them going. You want, the, you want the hospitality person that's willing to drop round meals or, or, or maybe drop round ingredients and then cook together. And so that person has the experience of enjoying cooking in the community. You want the person with the Labrador. You can just go for dog walks. Nothing particularly spiritual about it, but people who are depressed really benefit from getting out of the house, getting some fresh air, taking exercise having their senses stimulated by new sights and smells, every church needs a therapeutic Labrador. <laughs> you need the other people in there that maybe have more specialist skills in pastoral care. And you certainly will want to be referring that person on to a GP as well to look at whether uh, other medication is needed, if there's any suicidal tendencies, maybe a safeguarding officer involved here. Now, if they're up for it, if that person is happy, you might even want to have a little WhatsApp group where you can all communicate with not gossip, but just, oh, I'm really worried about her this week, really praying. Or, we had a great Bible study today, praise God. Now, do be sensitive to what the person wants. So, I'm not suggesting you do this for every person. This is more for the, the very sort of significant issues and struggles. Uh, but communicate and love each other well in a team. And allow that person to love you back. I'm working with a, a very lovely lady 
uh, in a local church to me who has such profound issues after a, a lifetime uh, of abuse. Uh, and she's someone that needs a lot of support, a lot of love, a lot of care. But at the start of lockdown, a little envelope arrived on my door from her. And inside that big envelope, there were five small envelopes with different dates on them. And as I opened those envelopes on those dates, there was a little picture and a Bible verse and a reminder that I loved. Could she ever stand up and do a talk? No. Could she ever leave a Bible study? No. Would she be ever, she can barely even attend church half the time. But can she serve me by encouraging me and helping me lift my eyes to Jesus? Absolutely. Encourage a community where we're caring for each other. Well, what does that care actually look like? Well, I'm going to introduce you, some of you may know it already, to a very simple pastoral care structure. Uh, I've stolen it or morphed it a little bit uh, from Paul Tripp's Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, which is a, a fairly weighty but very good book on how to do pastoral care. And it's simply four words. When we're walking alongside people who are struggling, we want to love them, know them, speak to them, and do things alongside them. It's not that you do these things one at a time, you know, I'm going to love them for three weeks, and then I'm going to get to know them a bit, and then I'll just talk at them. These are things that are going on simultaneously. Love, know, speak, do. One of the simplest pastoral structures on the face of the planet that we can all remember. But four words that will help us to love those who are struggling with their mental health well. Well, let's look at them uh, one at a time. What does it mean to, to love someone that's struggling? And that means partly being gentle with them in conversation. You know, there's no sense of, will you just get it together? Can you just, just not try and get out of bed? I mean, seriously, I, I know you're worried, but nothing bad is actually going to happen. Can you get a grip? None of that. It's about accepting them as they are. Not necessarily confirming all of their beliefs, because some of their beliefs will be very, very far from what God wants. Not stagnating them, because actually change is necessary. But accepting they are where they are right now. They are struggling with what they're struggling with, and that's your starting point. It's about being sacrificial with time. Now, people often challenge me on that slightly, going, I'm really busy already, Helen. Um, I'm not sure I can actually really fit any more in my diary. And that's not what I mean about being sacrificial with time necessarily. Sometimes it's necessary to set aside time, but it's about doing life together. I go shopping with people and we chat in Sainsbury's. I invite people round to chop down the triffids in my back garden. And then over coffee, we talk and we pray. I, I might sort out a drawer and someone comes with me. Choose your drawer carefully. <laughs> And, and we just do life together. There is a time, of course, for setting things aside, but, you know, I've got to eat anyway. Why not just have an extra person there while I'm eating? Integrate things normally. People don't want to feel like a project that you are setting aside time for. They want to be feel part of a family or a relationship. Just do it naturally. Spend time with people one-on-one, -on -one, not just in big groups. I'm saying that to the extroverts. Those of us uh, like me who are introverts, all you ever want to do is spend time one-on-one -on -one with people anyway. The thought of a party leaves us running for the hills. But for those of you who like big, bubbly parties, knock yourself out, have a few. 
but spend, out, spend time, quality time, one-on-one -on -one with people going for a walk. Make sure you're willing to, to cross the barriers to get to know that person as well. That might mean uh, travelling a little further or, or meeting in a coffee shop or, or eating food that uh, is just not quite your thing. I have a friend who absolutely uh, adores fast food. I'm not really a fast food kind of girl. I unwrap my burger and I sit there and think, is that food or is that plasticine? I don't know. <laughs> but that doesn't matter at that moment. I'm not here to have a culinary experience. I'm here to love someone. Go where they feel comfortable. Do the things that they would love to do, within reason, of course, and allow them to serve us. Well, and that means not judging them. It means always being humble. So what we're going to do is we're going to run a little bit of a case study over the next 20 minutes or so. And I want you to imagine somebody, you probably don't need to imagine, you've probably already got someone in your mind, someone who is really struggling with either depression or anxiety in your church. And I'd just like you to spend two minutes with the people around you, two, threes, whatever works. What would it look like to love them well? Now, please don't use people's names in this context. Um, uh, we want to be careful of people's stories and, and the recording devices on. It's amazing how much it does pick up. So please don't use people's names uh, at all. But be thinking about either a real person or a hypothetical person. What does it mean to, to love someone that is depressed or anxious? Uh, and what would that mean in ways that are manageable for your age, stage, life situation right now? Because I know some of you are absolutely flat out busy uh, and others of you far less so. What, what would realistic love look like? Two minutes with the person next door. <laughs> okay, let's uh, come back together again. Sorry, it's not a huge period of time, but uh, we won't do lots of feedback. Does anyone want to share any ideas of what it might look like to love someone that's struggling with depression or anxiety? Any, any thoughts from your conversations? So it's quite fun because I meet people on the bus or I have friends who walk home or take the bus home and so sometimes I'm just like, oh yeah, what bus are you taking today? And I'll just go on their bus with them. I love that. <laughs> Random bus counselling. <laughs> Bristol bus adventures. Bristol bus adventures. Loving it. But that, I mean, it's so simple, but it's so powerful, isn't it? You're going somewhere, I'll come with you. We'll sit on the bus. Fantastic. Buy a bus pass, that's your takeaway from uh, today's <laughs> training. Uh, any other thoughts? Um, listening. Listening. And we're going to come on to that in just a minute. That's so important. You know if someone really cares about you, if they're attentive to you, don't you? If they're just constantly looking around the room, uh, you just think, clearly there is no connection there. Clearly there is no real love. Yeah. Yes, children, I'm particularly children involved in the play date. Yes. yes, absolutely, just doing life together. And, and actually, you know, children can struggle clearly with anxiety, but actually being a young mum is a particularly anxious time. I mean, you've just given birth to this thing, and it's, it's loud and it's damp and it smells and it keeps you awake at night. I mean, gorgeous laughed, obviously, uh, but it's sleep deprivation time. Uh, and it's terrifying. You know, the number of young mums that will, on dads for that matter, will come home just with a sense of, my goodness, what do we do now? 
Um, and actually just being able to spend time with other people going, yeah, I don't know either. Um, but here are a few tips. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, there was a, a hand over there somewhere as well. Yeah, I'm just being consistent to say, let's have a quick call on a Friday afternoon and then try and keep out here and not. Yes. Sorry, I'll do this week and then yeah. before you go yeah, keeping your word, keeping your promise, keeping the commitments. If you're going to meet with someone week on week or pray with them week on week, make sure you do it. And, and keep that manageable. Don't over-promise at the start. That's often the key. Um, you know, I, I tend not to say I'm going to meet you for an afternoon every week because I know my diary is ridiculous. You know, I'll be in Bristol or something crazy. It's not going to happen. Um, but can I say, look, you know what, why don't we start the week together? 15 minutes, Monday morning. Uh, we'll read a couple of verses of the psalm and pray. Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, fits uh, quite naturally. Sorry, there was something down here as well. Just doing it ordinarily every day with people. Yeah. It takes away the intensity. Yes, just do life. Eat a meal together, shop together, walk together. Yeah, do life together. Yeah, one more. Text. One word, simple, to the point, effective, like it. Yeah, just be in touch. Uh, and there's just those random moments of communication, whether that's a Bible verse or a silly meme of a picture. I have a friend who, who just sends me random pictures of animals doing crazy things. You know, a picture of a grizzly bear getting, having its sort of a rub on a tree or something like that. Is it deeply spiritual? No. Does it make me smile? Absolutely. It's a good thing to do. So love people in manageable ways, but then get to know them. And that means listening without making any assumptions. We are all so different. Uh, and it's not even like all the people with depression are the same and all the people with anxiety are the same. One person's experience of depression can mean a pole apart from another person's experience of depression. One person's experience of anxiety is massively different to another, so listen to what it's like. Almost be a bit like a private detective, only slightly more caring, in actually wanting to really understand what a person is going through. And that means asking good questions, not Gestapo-like firing questions at them, but just, well, how does that feel? What, what's that like? I, I, I know that when I face situations like that, I tend to go in that direction. Is that the same for you, or, or, does, or is it different for you? Help, help me to understand. I'd love to get to know what life's like for you, day by day. And, and then listen to their words. What are they saying about God? What are they saying about themselves? What are they saying about God's word, world? You know, I'm useless, I'm pathetic, I'm such a waste of space, I just wish I'd never been born, I hate myself. Now those are more than just words, they speak to deep, powerful realities in people's lives. They are the things that we want to be attentive to. That's knowing someone, not on a surface level, not on a work is hard, or parenting is hard, or studying is hard, but on this is their particular experience of what that hardness is like. But it's not just their words we want to be listening to, it's their behaviour as well, because behaviour speaks volumes. Uh, are they drinking lots of alcohol? Is that their way of saying, I desperately need comfort because life is hard? Are they uh, exercising uh, massively uh, or dieting significantly? Is that their way of saying, life feels out of control and I've got to control something? Are they getting angry? Is that way their way of saying, I'm really feeling vulnerable right now and I feel I've got to lash out because if I don't push you away, then I'm worried you're going to hurt me. What is their behaviour saying? 
I can't, they, they don't turn up to stuff. You know, is that them saying, I don't really feel that you love me. I don't, I don't feel I'm wanted, so I'm going to stay away. Now, we'll have to check out what their behaviour is saying. We'll need to talk to them about that. We can't automatically know uh, what an activity is saying. But we can listen out for those things. They speak volumes. And as we listen to their words, as we listen to their behaviour, we can get a, and listen to their circumstances, because often you, you do get a, a bit of a glimpse of what's going on for somebody if you know a bit about what's happening, whether they're in a marriage that's falling apart, whether they are uh, just moved house, whether they are in a, uh, a work situation that is desperately, desperately stressful. As we listen to those things and get to know them, we can get a sense of where they're hurting, a sense of where change is needed, a sense, of, a sense of how to go forward. And of course we can ask them what they want in the middle of their circumstances too. You know, you can ask questions like this, you know, what do you want right now? Not in a, what do you want? But no, no what, what are you wanting? You know, how would you like me to pray for you? What would you want God to do for you? What are you, what are you desiring right now? Is this... I, I know you're running for another drink. Is this, is this a desire for comfort? Is this a desire for escape? Are, are you wanting to rebel? Talk me through that. What are you wanting? What are you thinking about most often? What's going through your mind at three o'clock in the morning? What are you loving right now? Are you loving Jesus? Are you loving yourself? Are you loving that thing that you turn to? What are you scared of losing? I mean, that's often so much of the root of anxiety, isn't it? A, you know, being scared of losing something precious to us, losing control, losing a person, losing respect, losing a position. It, it's a whole host of things. What are you scared of losing? Who are you trying to please? Are you trying to please Jesus right now? Or are you trying to please yourself? Or are you trying to please that person from the past that has such a dominant effect on your life but was so painful. Are you still trying to please them, even though you're an adult, but they, their effect was so profound in childhood that you still live your life for them? What are you trusting in? Jesus? Or your own ability to cope? Your own ability to sort things out? We want to go in gently. You're not going to ask all of those questions in one conversation. This is, you know, this is what you might ask over a period of sort of several weeks, several months even, maybe even several years. Just get to know people slowly and gently. Get to know them at the pace you would like them to get to know you. Unless you are in a formal therapeutic relationship as a counsellor, uh, even then you want to be very sensitive to the person in front of you. But if you're in a more of a friendship setting, don't ask them to give more than you would be willing to give yourself. But get to know them. So back in your twos. Uh, we're just going to be about a minute and a half for this. Thinking about that real or hypothetical person. How would you want to get to know them in the weeks after this seminar? How would you want to spend time with them? What, kind of, what would be one question you might want to go back and ask them? Just a minute and a half with someone near you. <laughs> okay, let's uh, come back together again. Good, I'm not going to ask you for feedback from that one. We're going to uh, move on to the next uh, slide, which is speak. We want to be people that are speaking words of hope. Now, it, speaking in response to what we've learned about them. We're not just speaking blanket truths into the ether. 
having loved that person and listened to them really well and knowing what's going on in their life, we want to then speak uh, truths into their life that are very powerful. Now, the things that we want to be speaking, I suppose first and foremost, we want to use our words for prayer. Because the most powerful way we can ever use our words is prayer. Talking to the God of creation, the God who loves the best and knows the best and understands the best and has plans the best. We want to be talking to him. They don't need to be complex prayers, um, but pray we should. We can pray for prayers of... Uh, you know, healing and getting better. We can be praying prayers of perseverance. We can be praying prayers that they will see God in themselves clearly. We can be praying prayers that they will know that they are loved. Uh, We can be praying prayers of hope uh, for that person. And we can be encouraging uh, the person we're walking alongside to pray as well. Um, They don't need to be long, complicated prayers. The short three-letter prayer, three-word prayer of the Bible is often the most profound. Lord, have mercy. On the darkest of days, when it all crashes in, when the words don't come and the tears are flowing, Lord, have mercy. Sometimes that's all see, people can say. But you know what? It's a great prayer. Talking to the covenant God who is in relationship with us. Knowing that he is powerful and good. And asking for him to do what he knows to be best. Pouring mercy into people's lives. Doesn't need to be big. But as well as prayer, we actually want to be talking to the person. Uh, And what we want to be doing is is talking words of truth. Now, it'd be very lovely. I I spent a lovely evening uh, with uh, a couple of ladies from this church uh, last night. And I could say, you know, Alison, I love you. Um, Might be quite a sweet thing for me to do. I appreciate you. I thank you. All of it would be true. Her life is not going to be transformed by those words. She might smile momentarily. But it's not going to be something that turns her life upside down. But God loves you. God is leading you. God is pouring blessings into your life. That is transformational stuff. Now, by all means, tell your friends you love them. But the transformation, the change, the real impact comes when they know that God loves them and is at work in their lives. And we want to do that by sharing words of life, truth, words of scripture. But we want to be doing that really sensitively. Now, I'm always at risk of being considered a heretic at this point, but bear with me. I'm I'm going somewhere that I hope will be useful. Sometimes we can make very shallow connections between our experience and and God's word. Anxiety would be uh, maybe a particular uh, example of that. As I said, I've struggled with anxiety myself. And I remember several weeks running, being in a church, uh, and, and saying to people, you know what, I'm feeling really anxious this week. And I got the same response every single time. Consider the lilies and the sparrows. Now that is scripture. That is a good verse. I am not knocking that verse. But the way it was being used was basically, I'm feeling anxious. Well, don't. Just look at a plant. (laughs) And this this is the heretical bit. Bear with me. At the end of those few weeks, I didn't feel less anxious. I just wanted to shove a lily down a sparrow's throat. (laughs) It didn't help. And that's because it was a real surface connection. They were just taking one word of my experience and linking it to one word in a Bible verse and hoping that that would in some way make a difference. But But it doesn't. 
Not a big difference. Now, you can use that verse beautifully, I hasten to add, uh, and we might look at that a little later. Now, there are, there are, there's easy ways and slightly more complex ways uh, of using scripture. The easy way, for those of you who are busy and completely feeling under the cosh at the moment, is simply this. I'm so sorry you're having a hard time. Shall we just think back to last week's sermon uh, and just think about how that applies to this situation now? That doesn't require you to come up with any Bible verses. It just encourages you both to look back on a shared experience and to think about how God's word, which I'm sure you've heard preached well and faithfully, is going to impact on the particular situation that you're looking at. That is the, the slightly lower maintenance way of doing this for those of you who are tired. For, for those of you who have a little bit more uh, time on your hands or a little bit more capacity, uh, you can think in terms of there being different kinds of Bible verses. So there are destination verses. You're feeling anxious. What we would like you to get to is the point where you're feeling less anxious. Uh, and so you might want to pick a verse like, okay, I'm so sorry you're having uh, a tough time. You know, as Christians, it's, it's such a privilege that God has invited us on a journey. And, and our destination is not to be anxious, but by prayer and position to bring everything to the Lord. Let, let's see how we can work our way towards that together. So you're not saying, don't be anxious, just pray. You're saying, actually, where we want to get to is a position of trust where we really are praying and bringing our worries to God. That's our destination. And now let's set our sights on that and work out how we can work towards it. It's the same with things like if you're working with someone or walking alongside someone who is uh, being very sexually immoral, maybe having a, uh, an affair or, or, or watching pornography recently, you might want to say, well, what, the place we want to get to is do not let there be a hint of sexual immorality or be holy because God is holy. That's where you're heading. But you, you cast those kind of verses as the destination. You don't just say, well, be holy or don't let there be a hint of impurity because the person's going to turn around and go, I know, but I can't do it. I'm getting it wrong. Cast the vision of direction. And then be looking at other verses that help you move towards that goal. And those will be things like process verses. Uh, Ephesians 4 uh, is a wonderful uh, place to go. Ephesians 4 verses 22 to 24. Basically, take off your old self. Uh, put on your new self by the renewing of your mind. That's how change happens, or one of the ways change happens in the Bible. Now, what we're not doing there is using it tritely. No, take off depression, think happy thoughts and go off and be, live an undepressed life. Clearly, that's not going to be helpful to anybody. But once you've done that bit of knowing people that we were talking about a few minutes ago, you, you've got a picture of what's going on in their life. You know, their anxiety, well, it's a bit about tough stuff at work. Uh, and it's a bit about hormones going slightly wrong. Uh, and it's a bit about the fact that they're really grumpy with God. And it's a bit about the fact that they don't believe God is caring for them. And it's a bit about the fact that they're running to ginger nuts rather than prayer. Uh, and it's a bit about the fact that they're sleep deprived because their child is very young or their elderly mum is lying awake, uh, keeping them awake at night. You've got a big picture of what is going on in that person's life. And what you do is you pick one of those things like, like I don't believe God cares. And every time that thought comes into that person's mouth, uh, mind, you're just kind of going, hang on a second, I'm going to catch that. That's my old self speaking. That's what pre-Christian or non-Christian Helen would have said, that God doesn't care about me. That's not new Helen. So I'm just going to catch that and go, oh, Lord, I've thought it again. Oh, I'm so sorry. 
I'm going to turn around from that because I know you do care for me. And what I'm going to do is now, I'll just spend a couple of minutes looking at a passage of scripture that reminds me that you do care. Now that's not a one and done thing. That's something to be repeated time and time again until it becomes more automatic to go, oh no, 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 of course God cares. Of course God cares. And as we do that, a little brick in the wall of anxiety gets loosened and its grip on us gets a little less. And we can do the same with our ginger nuts, you know? You know, oh, oh, terrible day. Oh, I just need sugar. Hang on a second. Then old self Helen would have run to the sugar. New self Helen, well, she might still have one ginger nut, but quite frankly, prayer is so much better. So I'm going to catch myself and go, no, I'm not going to have the ginger nuts tonight. I'm going to fall to my knees and I'm going to ask for God's help. And I'm going to fuel that by reminding myself that God loves me and he loves to hear my prayers. Little bite-sized chunks, manageable chunks. We don't, we don't ask people who are limping to do the high jump. We ask them to take one step. And little by little, those thought processes, those behaviours that are around their mental health struggles can begin to morph and change. And we can all know what it's like to become more like Christ. It doesn't necessarily take away the underlying ill health. But it does take away a lot of the pressure and the stresses and strains. And we can begin to think differently. And along the way, you'll want lots of other verses in there as well. Uh, When people fall flat on their face and go back and have another drink, then you want verses about grace. When people fall flat on their face and they just say, you know what, I can't keep going, you'll need verses about hope. When people stubbornly stick their feet on the ground, as I do all the time myself, and go, no, I'm not going to do this God's way, we can have verses of challenge. When people are doing well, and they've actually made progress, and they've had a couple of days when they have really been fighting those those old self-thoughts and been really focusing on the new self and the glory of God, we can have verses of encouragement. And we can spur people on. Philippians 1.6, he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. He's not going to give up on you and stop. Use destination verses, process verses, transformation verses to spur people on in bite-sized little bits of change. So gradually they can think more like God. Gradually uh, they can act more like God would want them to act. And part of that is combating the lies that the mental health struggles will bring into our minds. Uh, There can be many. I'm all alone, God doesn't care, I can't carry on, I'm guilty, it's all out of control, there is no hope. And and actually, just a a little plug, because the marketing manager of my publishing house uh, will not forgive me if I I don't do this. That's what my book on anxiety is about, looking at these lies in turn and looking at what, what the hope is. It's written... Short and simple for Christians that are struggling, uh, but also uh, accessible for non-Christians too. But there is beauty as we help people explore what is true rather than allowing them to keep living uh, what is a lie. We're not all alone. You know, Psalm 139, go from the east or the west or the heights or the depths, God is there. God is with us. If we're following Christ, the Holy Spirit is inside us. He couldn't be closer. It is impossible to be alone. God doesn't care. God sent his son to die for us. That's how much he loves us. I can't carry on. 
God provides for us each and every day. He doesn't necessarily provide for us to do all the crazy thoughts that come into my head. I might want to be a mountain goat that runs some kind of triathlon. It's not going to happen. God's not promised to equip me for that. But he has promised to equip me for what he's called me to today. Like he looked after the Israelites in the desert by providing manna and quail each day. He, has, he will provide for each of us day by day. We're guilty? No, we're clean. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die on the cross for the sins of uh, all of those who came to him, except for this group of women in Bristol. No. All the sins washed away. We might need to come back and say sorry sometimes, but that grace is, is guaranteed. That, that grace is lavished on us. He has not missed you out. Your sin is not so big that you cannot be atoned for. And if you are feeling dirty or shamed because of what's been done to you, that is covered by the blood of Jesus too. He has given us robes of righteousness that cover over the horrible things that have been done to us and makes us new and clean. There is hope in Christ. Nothing is beyond his care. The powers and principalities that would have us kept in bondage have been broken by the cross. We don't have to be defined by our past anymore. There is freedom and newness of life. It takes time for us to grasp it, but it's there. Is everything really out of control? Well, think of the story of Joseph. Hated by his family, almost murdered, trafficked uh, to a foreign land, put to work in the home of a woman who was not pure, accused of a crime he didn't commit, thrown into prison because he was, uh, even though he was innocent, left languishing in prison because his friend forgot him. Only got out of prison because he was asked to stand before the most powerful man in that nation and do what must have felt like an impossible task. And when God enabled him to do that, given the job of managing an entire nation through a seven-year famine relief program, Anxious? I would have been. It feels out of control, doesn't it? And sometimes when we look at our lives, it feels out of control. But what does Joseph say in Genesis 50 to his brothers? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. There was a plan all along. We don't always know what that plan is. I'm sure there are many moments where Joseph had no clue what that plan was. But there was a plan. It was never out of control. There is hope. And then finally, we can do things together. Take around meals, offer lifts, do paperwork together, to go for dog walks, go to appointments together, do life together, have a laugh. It is so important to smile, even on the hardest of days. And to keep going in our persevering. Knowing we can't make it better for the other person, but we can make a difference because God makes a difference. Knowing that we will need to rest sometimes. We're not called to help each other 24-7. Sleep is important. I almost got kicked out of a reformed evangelical church recently by uttering this phrase, you can honour God as much by your rest as you can by your work. <laughs> Shocking, I know, but it's true. It's part of the Ten Commandments. Keeping going together for the glory of God and the good of those around. And as we do that, as we do these simple things, 
and, and work with some more specialists because sometimes that specialist help is needed. We will see change. We will see people become more trusting and the anxiety begin to dissipate. We will see the depressed person beginning to see hope. We will see the addict beginning to break free. And sometimes that healing and wholeness will be spectacular. And those that were flat on the floor will just sprint to the finishing line of the Christian life. And sometimes that person keeps limping. Because we're all going to be struggling with something until the day Jesus calls us home. But you know what? You ever watch the marathon? That limp across the finishing line is just as beautiful as the sprint. You've still got that. You've still got the medal. You've still got home. And you've got people around you that care. I'm almost out of time, so I'm just going to quickly do a few uh, notes on what it looks like, not just to respond to mental illness or mental uh, ill health, but just to maintain good health. Because hopefully some of us here are doing all right at the moment. Uh, and we actually want to be just maintaining that. And part of that is remaining to be committed to being dependent. The moment we try and do things in our own strength, we're heading towards burnout. We're doing life in God's strength. That's what he calls us to do. I am absolutely useless at this. I, one of my former pastors had this phrase that he used time and time again. It's like, Helen, take off your cape. No one needs you to be superwoman. Just depend on the Lord. Pray. Be part of a team. We need to feed our body and soul with a balanced diet. And that means eating healthily. I know for some of us that's hard. Uh, some of us, we need help with that. But actually enabling our body to function, it, we can't expect our, our mind to work well if it hasn't got the fuel it needs uh, to do its work. So a, a healthy, balanced diet is so important. Uh, but it, equally so, our, our, our soul needs God's word. We need to be fed with God's word, to be nourished with all the beauty that is there. You know, the quiet time is not a duty. It's not, a, it's not just a routine. This is, this is a time to hear from the living God who adores you. Curl up on the sofa with the Bible. Not because it's your normal time, but because you just want to hear from your dad. And you know his words are good. Aim for service that's sacrificial, but sustainable. We're not going for burnout in six months. We're going for the long haul here. I want to be seeing all of you around the, the throne, praising God, going, yeah, we had 80 years, or whatever, of serving Jesus. Take the rest. And build a community where you can spur each other on. Hopefully, that will involve repenting when you get it wrong, as we all do. I do, but also giving grace <coughs> to those who have hurt us. And being willing to ask for help. None of us have got all the gifts we need to help another human being. We're all limited. So ask for help from pastors, from women's workers, from specialist organisations like mine. Ask for help from your GP and the mental health services. Be people that ask. Read around the subject, read books, don't have to be mine. And as we do that, we can be people that keep going, that love each other well, that spur each other on, 
who can't fix the problems of this world, but can bring community and hope and light and life and love in such beautiful quantities that even the people that are flat on the ground begin to see hope and joy and Christ. We're going to pray in a minute, but a couple of resources that you might like to look at. Uh, there are some websites there. Biblical Counseling UK is the organisation I work for. Uh, CCEF is the American equivalent. Uh, Biblical Counseling Coalition, similarly an American uh, resource. A course that you might like to run uh, at your church, if, if that's appropriate, either one-on-one -on -one or in bigger groups, is Real Change. And that just helps us look at a model of change that's in the Bible and helps us work through that process of change with a case study, if you like, a really personal change project, and we can work on one aspect of our life. Or, or if you're uh, more medically minded and you want to dig more into a biblical understanding of what mental health is, the diagnoses and the medications, uh, Mike Emlett's uh, Descriptions and Pre Pre Prescriptions um, is a lovely book. Mike is a uh, doctor who is now working as a, a biblical counsellor, and so he brings both of those things together really well and any of my books uh, might be of help. I'm going to pray now, and we're going to take uh, just a two-minute break. Um, oh, sorry, one last thing. Uh, there's a Talking Church conference coming up in March, uh, uh, a few days in Derbyshire, uh, run by Biblical Counselling UK. Uh, you might be interested in that as well. There are some leaflets somewhere over there, I think. But what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple of minutes break. If you've got any final questions, do feel free to put them in the basket. We'll spend about then 20 minutes answering those questions uh, before we have a final song. But let me pray before we do anything else. Father God, thank you that you are a God who loves all of your children. And thank you that you love those of us in this room who are feeling strong and those of us who are feeling utterly on the ground. And Father, I pray that as we go back to our churches, you will galvanise us to love each other well, knowing that we all need you, knowing that you are at work in our lives, knowing that you are powerful and good and kind, and knowing that you are bringing change into our lives. Father, help us not to be impatient and want to change more quickly than you want us to change. Help us not to give up and believe there is no hope. But help us to spur each other on to love and good works confident that you are a God who is amazing beyond belief. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. See you in a couple of minutes. I think it's not easy, is it? But I think listening to why, uh, not making any assumptions about why that is, hearing their pain, because um, they probably have been through something deeply, deeply painful. Uh, acknowledging if the church has made some mistakes, because churches do sometimes. Uh, and often when people say, God hasn't helped me, what they're actually saying is the church hasn't helped me. Uh, and sometimes we do need to be humble and go, yes, yes, we got that wrong. Uh, but if they're up for it, I think taking them to places like Psalm 88, which is a psalm where there is nothing positive except for the fact that the psalmist is talking to God. But remembering that actually that wasn't the only psalm 
written by that person as far as we, uh, and, and that there is still hope. Uh, and looking at the character of God, a God who doesn't always give help or obvious help quickly, who doesn't make things better overnight. That, you know, look at how long the Israelites were wandering, look at long, how long Joseph um, was struggling. He is not a God of the instant. His timing is very different from ours. And so helping them get that understanding that just because God hasn't done what they were expecting now doesn't mean God doesn't have good purposes and good plans. But I think focus on who God is rather than what he's done um, might be a way in. Thank you so much for these questions. Um, I know of godly parents whose child has committed suicide. How do I support them or even get my head around this? Yeah, and excuse me if I do cry for this one, because it's definitely a, that's, that's something that I have lived very closely as well. Um, very dear friends lost a, a, a child to suicide. Um, and I, I don't think you can fully get your head around it. Um, there is a sense of uh, just wanting to cry out to the Lord, Lord have mercy. I don't really know what's going on right now. But remembering that this is a broken world, uh, and that this is a world where... Uh, mental health issues uh, are real and sometimes people can't get the help they need in time that's not a criticism of any of the services that's just the reality we're in uh, and those services can't make people better and therefore there is always a, a risk a small risk but a risk so acknowledging that this is a normal part of life I think helps us frame that in terms of helping the family Praying for them is so important. Uh, listening to them. Being patient with them because it, it will be years before uh, things are... Well, things will never go back to how they were, but it will be years before things even become uh, vaguely how they were before. Um, uh, but just constantly reminding them that they're not alone. God is there, you are there. Constantly reminding them that there is hope helping them to remember that just because they've lost one child doesn't mean they're going to lose the other children, which is often something that can be quite a big thing in people's minds. Uh, and, and if you want to equip yourself, IVP have uh, published a book called Grieving a Suicide, uh, which is very helpful uh, and helps get a, a better idea of, of what it's like to, to be in that position and therefore a better idea to, wa to walk alongside them. I mean, from my experience, the first few weeks were just cooking the meals, taking the other children out, uh, to the playground and holding them and crying. And then the, the, the later few weeks and months uh, were about lamenting together. The biblical concept of lament is so beautiful. And then a few months after that, it's about starting to rebuild little by little. Thank you. Sometimes when I feel very upset, I feel so trapped and frustrated that I struggle with self-harm as a release. I am crushed with shame afterwards and feel afraid to pray as I know I have sinned against the Lord I love. How do I be bolder at approaching his throne of grace amidst crushing shame? Thank you, thank you. Uh, thank you. And I, I want to kind of caveat all these questions in, I, I, I don't know you guys, um, and therefore I might be missing something as I answer these questions. Uh, I can only give generic things in these answers rather than specific. But I think, uh, I think it was your introduction, wasn't it? You, you talked about us being sinners, saints, and sufferers. And I think when we're in a cycle of self-harm, um, which is, is so common, uh, we can tend to locate ourselves in the sinner category and we can forget the sufferer and saint category. 
Uh, and the reality is, yeah, yeah, there is an element of rebellion in there, but actually it's because life is hard. Uh, and, it's be and it's because there's something that we need help with. Uh, and so rather than just looking at the behaviour and going, oh, I messed up again, I think part of it is going, well, let's, let's look at what's fueling this. Where do I need God's comfort? Where do I need words of hope? Where can I look at new ways of running to get the, new, the help that I need? Self-harm is my, my current pattern and it feels familiar, but actually where can I get something better in terms of comfort? And then also that same corner as well, remembering that actually just the very fact that you've asked that question on a morning like this means that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Because if the Holy Spirit wasn't at work, you wouldn't want to change. God is active. God is doing his stuff. And he's not going to stop. So talking to a counsellor would no doubt be helpful. Uh, maybe keeping a, a journal uh, to get some of the emotions out. Maybe looking at some of the triggers and working out how to flee and fight temptation in those trigger moments. Uh, but, but being gentle. And it's so hard, isn't it? Because often we think, oh, I, I've messed up again, therefore I, I deserve something harsh. But that's not the God of the Bible. He is gentle with us. And so actually being gentle with yourself and working out those foundational issues will probably be quite helpful in actually battling uh, the temptation that's there. Thank you. When we talk about Christians struggling with mental health, the answers often seem too neatly packaged with less room for grief solution, fo grief solution, sorry, less room for grief, solution focused overall. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, and it, it varies so much. I, I speak in a spectrum of churches, uh, and, and some churches it's like, change now, just be self-disciplined, and some churches like, yeah, God loves you as you are, don't worry, changing. And there is this entire uh, spectrum of theologies, um, and it will vary a lot. Um, but I think, Recapturing the beauty of biblical lament is something that we could all do with doing. I mean, Jesus lamented, the prophets lamented. We've got an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, uh, which has five different laments in it. Um, and the Psalms have psalms of lament in them, which were meant to be sung annually. It wasn't you sung your psalm of lament and then you were happy. It was a life of lament. Uh, and that might be part of what that question is getting at, I think, in going, no, it's, it's not that we have to fix ourselves uh, or God fixes us and then we go off and be happy. This is a broken world where things hurt. And some of the things will hurt for a long, long time. In fact, some of the things will hurt till Jesus calls us home. Uh, and so having that life of lament is, is so important. But lament is, I think sometimes we can think of lament as being slightly self-focused or self-indulgent. But lament, which is basically calling out to God, articulating our pain, telling God what we would like him to do, but then expressing our trust as we wait for him to do that or bring about his good purposes, is meant to be a regular focus of the Christian life. Uh, and I think as Christians, we, we want to make sure we don't fall to either extreme. We don't want to fall to the extreme of assuming there must just be inertia and there can be no change. But neither do we want to fall into the trap of thinking there must be quick change. It's okay to weep with those who weep. In fact, we're commanded to do so. I'm helping someone I love with their anxiety. My loved one tends to repeat themselves over and over again and want to offload their problems. At what point do you say that's enough? Uh, 
And that's such a hard, hard call, isn't it? And again, I, I can only give very generic pointers uh, here. Um, repeating in anxiety can be really important. So what we don't want to do is say you've said that once is enough. Because it's actually in the repetition that the processing often happens. Uh, it's actually in the repetition that sometimes the lament happens. And so what's, it, it can sometimes be a little tricky, especially if you're living with that person, to be hearing the same things time and time again. But there is, there is usefulness in that. And so we don't want to be squashing that. But there do need to be limits because there can become a point where you're reinforcing your negative thoughts. And so what, what's often useful is, yes, go for the repetition, but think about the framework of that repetition and be reframing those negative thoughts or those anxious thoughts. So it might be, for example, I don't know what the particular scenario here is. Uh, my boss is driving me mad. I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to resign. My boss is driving me mad. I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to resign. And if you just stay in that, it gets a bit of a rut. But if you start there, my boss is a nightmare. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to resign. But then gradually move on to, my boss is a nightmare. I, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know whether to resign. But actually, there is a God who gives wisdom, James reminds us. I don't know what to do. I, I don't know whether to resign. My boss is a nightmare. But actually, the Lord has prepared good works in advance for me to do. Each repetition, you're gradually morphing and you're gradually bringing to a more Christ-centered place. You're not, you're not squashing the, the articulation, but you're, you're injecting Jesus and hope into that. Uh, and therefore, the cycle, rather than going down, is a cycle that ends up coming up and lifting your eyes to Jesus. Uh, and so that might be one thing uh, that you want to try. Um, at what point do you tell someone who's struggling that you think they should see a doctor or counsellor? And how do you go? How would you go about telling them that? And that's going to vary um, so much on the person, and it's going to vary depending on what your relationship is with them. You know, if it's a really good friend and you are really open and honest with them, you can probably just sit down and go, you know what, I'm so worried about you. Uh, I'm not saying this with any sense of judgment. I get myself in the muddle too, but I really think you need to get some help. That's not going to work with everybody, though. That's going to you know, cause an argument with some people uh, if you say that. So, so it's about knowing the person. But I often go in with questions rather than statements. How do you feel you're doing at the moment? Uh, you know, what, how, how, you know, do you think your struggles are, are, are on the up or do you, do you think your struggles are, are, are stable or do you think things are going downhill at the moment? What would help you? What would help you uh, in those struggles? I've been thinking, you know, I, I know other people that are in the same situation as you, uh, some of them are going to self-help groups, some of them are seeing a counsellor, some of them are seeing their GP, some of them are reading a book, some of them are, uh, are chatting to friends. Um, you know, wh where on that spectrum do you think? Um, you lie. Uh, and hopefully some of them will self-diagnose as being in need of some help. Mm -hmm. so, sadly, sometimes you just have to let people be. Uh, you, you can't force people into therapy. It's never a good idea. Uh, unless, of course, it's a safeguarding situation. If someone's life is actually in danger, then you've got to get the statutory help. Uh, but again, it won't be you kind of making them get the help, uh, that will be the statutory services uh, responsibility to, to get the help in there. Um, but be gentle, be patient, uh, and walk alongside people well. Pray. Pray is always a good thing to do. Okay, following on from that, how best to support a boyfriend or husband with mental health issues, specifically depression and self-harm? That is so hard, isn't it? And I think... In some ways, just seeing someone you love so deeply going through that, the pit is it's devastating. 
Um, and I think the thing I'd say to whoever has written that is, first and foremost, make sure there's help for you, uh, as well as there being help for the person that you're walking alongside. Because you are going to need people praying for you, you are going to need people listening to you, you are going to need people walking with you and making sure that you are okay uh, as you walk alongside uh, this particular relationship. Uh, get them to talk to their GP. It may be that antidepressants are, are helpful. Um, encourage them at least, you can't force them. Um, maybe read a book with them. Uh, short, bite-sized, don't try and do anything too big. Pray with them. Uh, encourage them to take exercise. Uh, when it comes to serious uh, depression, the medication is so important, uh, but mild to moderate depression, it tends to react, uh, respond as well to exercise as it does to medication. Um, so I'm, that's not an anti-medication stance, it's just saying you've got options. Uh, and so, you know, uh, exercise can be uh, very good. But, but if it's serious depression, then medication is almost always uh, necessary. Um, but do just be doing the normal things of life together. Encourage them to have a routine, encourage them to get out of bed. Uh, remind them that they are loved and they don't have to be happy for you to love them. You've answered this question a little bit in your last one, but um, this is particularly about housemates with mental health, uh, where relationships could be more intense or there are fewer boundaries with time. Mm. And, and it's okay to put some boundaries with time in. Uh, it's okay. Um, I, I, I've got a guest at the moment. Uh, she's not a permanent housemate, but she is uh, there you know, in my life currently. Uh, and I, I have my antisocial times. Uh, we have it a bit, of a, a bit of a joke. It's like, yeah, don't talk to Helen right now. She's is, she is just really seriously no point in talking to Helen right now. She's having a read, she's having a pray, she's having a walk. Uh, it's, it's a no-go time. And, and it's not done in kind of heavy boundary setting. It's just like, you know what, I'm going to be absolute grump if I don't have some alone time. So um, please let me have some alone time. And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I'm going to have some alone time too. So have those conversations. Uh, if necessary, have those conversations that... The amount of time I spent to you is not indicative of the amount I love you. Those two things are not... Uh, I mean, obviously, if you're not spending any time with somebody, that's not love. But it's not like the more time you spend with someone, the more you love them. Um, there is actually a, a balance to be got there. Um, and so having those conversations can be good. Uh, but actually try and do things together rather than just be in together. Uh, um, whether that's praying or whether that's running or whether that's going out for a meal or whether that's shopping. Just try and be active together. Uh, so it doesn't become too intense in the conversations. The conversations naturally lighten when you're in Costa. <laughs> this one's about dependency. How do you support someone with mental health struggles without them becoming too dependent on you, even if you're encouraging them to depend on Jesus? Yeah, um, and dependency can, can be something. D don't be scared of dependency. It's often a, a, just a stage people are moving through. I mean, don't encourage it, uh, but don't, don't panic if it, if it happens a little bit. Um, uh, but that's where the teamwork comes in. So right from the beginning, I always say to people, yeah, I'd love to walk alongside you. I'd love to chat. You do know I'm fallible and limited, though. You know, I don't have everything that you need to get through this. So let's be thinking about who else we can get involved. And I have those conversations, whether I'm being a counsellor or whether I'm being a friend. Uh, and I make it very clear that this isn't a one-on-one -on -one relationship. This is a, a family. And I have specific gifts which I'm happy to use, uh, but we're going to, from day one, bring in others. Now, if you're already in that situation of dependency, actually peddling back from that uh, can be hard. But sometimes just being honest, going, you know what, I, I think, I think it would be good for all of us if, if we 
just had some other people uh, involved in encouraging both of us. Make it mutual uh, and see if you can bring people in. Okay. How do you help yourself and others with people-pleasing, practically and spiritually? Uh, tell me about it. In front of 80 people in Bristol, you want them to like you. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a, a great uh, book by Ed Welsh called When People Are Big and God Is Small. Uh, and if that is you, give it a read. It, it, it's worth, it is worth reading. I think it's about remembering that if we are doing something to please a person rather than pleasing God, we're probably not helping them as well as they deserve um, actually, we help people best, we love people best by giving them what God knows to be best, not by giving what they want. Uh, and sometimes that's going to lead to conflict and that's really hard. Um, uh, but part of what it means to speak the truth in love is to actually say some hard things sometimes. Um, uh, and when I'm speaking to someone who's an addict and they've just gone out and got drunk again or just gone out and taken medication again, I'm not going to say that's okay. I mean, I'm not going to give them a hard time. I'm not going to judge them. But I'm not going to pretend it doesn't matter. Because it matters to God. And so just reminding ourselves that it's more beautiful to give somebody what they need than what they want. I've got two minutes left. And I want to put two questions in here. Okay. Short, brief. Those questions are not going to be read out. And there's so many good ones. How do you change... Where do you start with letting go of a bad coping mechanism or an addiction when you love it so much? Mm. One minute. One minute. <laughs> uh, read uh, the book, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, would be a good start. Um, I think one thing that often gets missed out is imagining how much better life could be without it. Because often we don't have the imagination to really believe that we would be better off without our addiction. I was like that. But actually spending time imagining what it would be like to be free, clean, not ashamed, being able to stand before God knowing that you haven't done that thing, knowing that you're not worrying your family, knowing that you've got nothing to hide. Get that vision of how that is so much better than where you are right now. Now, you'll need help, probably. You'll need books, you'll need counsellors, you'll need a, a GP, potentially. You know, all, all of those things. But know what you're aiming for. Learn to hate your addiction. Not, not hate yourself. Learn to hate your addiction and love freedom. And push towards it with everything you've got, or everything God's got. Thank you, I work in the medical profession, and I encounter people with suffering, suffering with mental health every day. How do I balance helping both these people from a professional point of view whilst considering my Christian faith? Oh, that's a great question and praise God for doctors uh, and nurses and other people like that. You are limited in a secular uh, workplace in what you can say um, and there's no point in being naive and thinking otherwise. Uh, but you can ask people if they have a faith. You can ask people if that faith, uh, how they how they perceive that faith, is that, in what ways is that faith helpful to them? Uh, and you can ask them uh, if there is anything their faith community can do uh, to encourage them in their struggles. You probably can't get much more specific than that. Uh, but you can ask those general questions. And occasionally that will lead to a good conversation. It's not often, but occasionally that will lead to a good conversation. 
if you're in a hospital situation, do make the most of chaplains. Uh, do just drop in, or they, you know, there's a, a community chaplain or a hospital chaplain uh, that you might be able to chat to. But apart from anything else, just pray. Just pray and pray and pray and pray. And sometimes, you know what, beautiful things happen because God is good. Uh, and one of uh, the people that I'm seeing on a more formal kind of counselling basis at, at church at the moment is someone that came into a worshipping community uh, simply because their GP said, have you considered uh, what impact faith could have on your struggles? So if you are a medic, don't be naive, that's not going to happen every time you have a conversation, but it can, and it is so good when it does. Thank you so much, Helen. There are so many takeaways from this morning. I'm going to buy a bus pass for once. <laughs> not entitled to one quite yet. <laughs> Just get that in. Um, but thank you so much for talking to us in such a down-to-earth way and for being vulnerable about your own messes. So I think you have inspired us to be vulnerable about our own and for being practical in how we can think about helping others, loving, knowing, speaking and doing. And most of all, thank you for encouraging us to pursue Christ. Thank you so much. I'm going to say now. Um,